This episode is sponsored by the newly released South African action movie Indemnity. When a traumatized ex-firefighter in Cape Town wakes up next to his wife's murdered body with no recollection of what transpired, he finds himself labeled as the prime suspect. He goes on the run and is soon hunted by a notorious police chief and an unknown third party. He must now fight for his life and find out who killed his wife before a conspiracy changes the course of a nation forever. Starring a proudly South African cast, with Jared Cadult in the lead, who, by the way, did all of his own stunts, every single one. Jared, suspended out of a 21-story window, actually Jared. Starring alongside Jared are Gail Mabalani and Nicole Fortain, in South Africa's biggest action film in terms of action sequences to date. Indemnity releases in cinemas nationwide on the 13th of May and promises to fast become the gem in the South African film industry's action movie crown. A huge thank you goes out to Indemnity for supporting I Lived Through This. And you just see these freshly dug graves. We are about to be buried alive. And he was no longer my ritual master teacher. He was just a man. And I saw it for the first time. Try to catch me howling at the The stories told on I Lived Through This are told in good faith by those who experienced them. The views expressed by the survivors in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of me, the podcast, or any sponsor of the show. Some of the stories on this podcast may include triggers for some listeners, including descriptions of injuries, sexual violence, abuse, and other triggering topics. Please consider this when listening to this podcast. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht. You may know me from my other podcasts, True Crime South Africa or the Devil's Dorp Companion Podcast. Through my podcast journey in talking to survivors and the family members of victims, I discovered the life-changing power of stories. Stories told from the heart as a narrative of a human being's lived experience, are enormously impactful for both the storyteller and the listener. In my new podcast series, I Lived Through This, I bring you the stories of ordinary South Africans who faced seemingly insurmountable odds and survived to tell you the tale in their own words. From getting trapped in a destructive cult, surviving an abusive relationship, 
living through a natural disaster, life-changing disease, and even a fight for survival with a wild animal. Join me for these powerful tales of facing the unimaginable and fighting to be able to say, I lived through this. This is a Killer Audio Creations production. As with all of the stories told on I Lived Through This, I'd like you to go into this with an open mind. Bernice is going to talk about a lot of spiritual stuff that may not vibe with everyone, and that's okay. Her story is not about the beliefs behind the organization. It is about her survival of a dangerous cult and pyramid scheme situation. As we've seen with many cults, The beliefs are really secondary. It's the control that is vital. According to the Modern Mystery School's website, it, quote, is an international community of lightworkers, initiated in an ancient tradition of service, compassion and empowerment. We believe in the maxim of know thyself. To know yourself is to know others, to know the universe and to know God by whichever name you choose to use, end quote. Another thing that I'd like you to keep in mind is that this is not a journalistic podcast. I am not here to prove or disprove any statements. I'm here to help people tell their stories. This is Bernice's story and her experiences. But international journalists have looked into her story and they have published and shared it too. Does she need that validation? No, I don't think she does. But it exists all the same. Benisa's story is not necessarily told chronologically, because most of her story revolves around the various constructs within the organization she was involved with, she first provides us with an insight into the setup of the modern mystery school. I'm going to be splitting Bernice's story into two parts. But don't worry, I'm not going to go all sadistic on you and make you wait for part two. I'll be releasing both parts at the same time. So this is part one of I Lived Through This. Bernice survived a cult. So I was involved with the Modern Mystery School from 2006 to the beginning of 2017, And how they operate is exactly like a cult. In fact, they are a cult. So it's it's a pyramid scheme, but one of a spiritual one. I just want to explain a little bit about how the hierarchy of the school works. And they actually changed the whole format after I'd left. So it wasn't like this while I was in the school, but this is how that they have actually changed the format of the school since since I'd left in, uh, and I'd left in 2017. So they have a hierarchy of three men who are who sit at the top of this pyramid and they run the school. So it's Goodney Goodnison, Hedeto Nkangama, and Dave Lanyon. And then underneath them, they have what's called the Council of Twelve, which are all women, and they are all guides, initiated guides, and I'll go into that a little bit later. And the rest fall below them. So all the other healers and teachers, and just like a proper pyramid scheme. And the women in the Council of Twelve refer to themselves as diviners. So if you have to address any of them 
or to go up to them or to speak to them. Say, for example, you have to say Davina and then their name. And the same with Goodney, who owns the school. He has to be addressed as founder Goodney. You can't just go up to him and say, Goodney, I've got to go as founder Goodney. And then Adetto and Dave, they have the title of Ipsissimus with a long list of God names that they give themselves afterward. And one of the Council of Twelve, her name is Rita Funenberg, and she runs her own center, which falls basically under the umbrella of the modern mystery school South Africa called Lumina Lucum Center of Excellence. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning Rita is because she is in charge of running the modern mystery school here in South Africa. So many of the other teachers and the guides, they do exactly the same thing by forming their own kind of businesses under the umbrella of the modern mystery school. Um, Red flag, fancy titles to elevate them. Something that is interesting about how Bernice chose to survive this is that she's educated herself considerably on the situation she lived through, namely cults. Now, one of the traits of a cult is that they form a group identity and they have this elitist thinking about themselves. So with an elitist worshipping leader, and they go so far as naming themselves and giving themselves that identity. And all the higher-ranking initiates in the school, which I've just kind of explained, have all been given God and goddesses names that they have to embody, which is, of course, a typical cult spiritual hierarchy format. So I just want to explain, before I go into my story, a little bit about the format of the modern mystery school path. So you get three paths in the, in the mystery school. So the first path is your healer's path. Your second path is your ritual master path. And your third path is the path of the guide. So in the healer's path, you have to first get the life activation, which is a healing modality. Then you've got to go through a few little classes or workshops to be able to go to doing Empower Thyself, which is a workshop where you get initiated. And then from there, you can actually go and do Healers Academy. So it's kind of a whole set of of healings and, and little classes that you need to go through. And of course, the major initiation being empower thyself, then to be able to go on to doing Healers Academy One. Now, Healers Academy One is normally about a week. And here you actually have to learn how to do the life activation. And at the end of this, all of these programs that you do, you have to pay in advance a small amount of money to the actual headquarters that you're doing it in. And then every initiation, you have to pay in cash, in an envelope. So it's normally, if it was in South Africa, it would be rands. If we were traveling overseas, it'd be large dollar bills that you'd have to literally put in envelopes to hand over. So that is Healers Academy 1. And then, then from then on, you can, you can go and do Healers Academy 2. And in Healers Academy 2, is where you learn the full spirit activation, which is also about a week. These courses can be anything from 50 to 60,000 Rand. I mean, that was the time that I was doing them. And remember, if you're doing them overseas, like in any of the other countries, because the school is all over the world. So you've got to cost in flights, accommodation, uh, and then of course pay for the classes and everything that you need the tool. So 
if you're going to go and do Healers Academy, be prepared to then, you know, have to fork out, oh, they come to you and they say, you need a book and you've got to spend this money and that money. And before you know it, uh, you start ranking up a huge amount of debt. So serious red flag there from a business perspective. 50,000 to 60,000 rand in cash in an envelope? I mean, I'm not saying the words tax evasion, but tax evasion? Now, if you're thinking, well, okay, if I pay that money, it's like investing in my own business, right? Because then I'm certified. I use this word loosely. And I can go ahead and practice and earn that money back. Well, no, because your certification expires and you have to recertify all over again. And then from the healer's path uh, of uh, the full spirit activation, and on that, every year you have to research life activation protocol and the full spirit activation protocol. And every time you research every single year, you get a little sticker on your certificate and that just, that just says that you're allowed to continue to do the healing modality. And, of course, you've got to pay money to research it for them to basically check to see that you're doing the same thing. And sometimes what they do is, and this is a typical of a cult, uh, they change things, uh, you know, where, wherever they feel like it. So they say it's a 3,000-year-old lineage, King Solomon, Salomon lineage, so it's actually, they've changed the name Solomon to Salomon so they could copyright it. And if you don't research, then, then they basically strip you of your initiation so you cannot do the, the healing modality. So there alone is the, the entrapment starts, they're hooking you in, and the brainwashing begins. So in the beginning, it's all light and fluffy, and you think this is amazing, and so it goes on. Then you get to the path of the guide. Now, the guide, according to the modern mystery school, is the highest uh, initiation you can get. And that is where you get to teach, empower thyself and get to initiate people and bring people into the modern mystery school. I couldn't help but notice the similarities to the cult called Nexium here in bringing new members in and how this organization has also blended the elements of a pyramid scheme with the elements of a cult. And it really has to make you wonder how much of a difference is there between those two types of organizations? So that is where they make all of their money. So, so literally when you're a guide, you have to have another guide training you. You have to go for that. You have to be chosen for the initiation, which again could cost you up to a hundred thousand rand because you've got to pay 50,000 rand or 60,000 rand for the actual initiation, which literally takes like three minutes. And then you've got to go through a training process with the guide. You get allocated a guide. Mine was Julia Tiffin. And then we had a fallout and then it was Rita van der Berg. And from there, literally, you have to pay them to fly. Now, Rita was in Johannesburg and I'm in Cape Town. So I had to fly her to Cape Town and then I had to organize people to come into the class. And then she used to mark me on the class according to their set of rules that they had set out in the modern mystery school. With this, and as I mentioned earlier, there's always added 
fees on like when, when you're not expecting it so you've got to pay for your manual your manual is not included you've got to pay for the flight of the guide and you've got to give them all the money that your clients are paying for which at the time is for seven and a half thousand rand in my time apparently it's gone up to way more than that so you have to pay them the money so you make nothing out of it you've got to pay for their flight you've got to pay for their accommodation you've got to set up everything pick them up and then, of course, you've got to buy all the equipment. And the equipment is very expensive. You need a sword. And my sword cost me about 7,000 rand. And then, of course, you've got to buy guide candles. Now, they are very pedantic and extremely strict that you cannot buy anything outside of the school because it's not of the light. So the guide candles alone, which is our typical, normal no different to any other candle you would buy at a Mr. Price store, except it's got a pentagram on it and it's got no smell. So there are four colors and there's a black white, a black one and a white one. And that cost me at the time also seven and a half thousand rand just for six candles, which was complete madness. I'm sorry, ma'am, but your Mr. Price candles are not of the light. I can't. I just can't. Then you get the ritual master path. Now, the ritual master path starts with um, RM1, ritual master one. So that's the apprenticeship. So basically you learn, um, you know, what it is to be a ritual master, um, what it is to fight evil. And that's just like, you know, the lower level of starting to walk the path of the warrior. And then from there, you go up to the second step initiation, which is Ritual Master 2. And at this initiation, you get given a god or goddess name. As I mentioned earlier, they give you a god or goddess name that you have to start to embody and become that. So you do your research and then you start to embody what that god and goddess name is. Name is. Now, bear in mind, through all of this, you have to be chosen by the hierarchy of light. Now, the hierarchy of light is their own system that the modern mystery school, according to their tradition, is the hierarchy of light, like which is God and then all the angels and how they've set it up in their format. You get chosen. And here's another really familiar aspect of a cult. And then from there, you get 2.5 ritual master without an initiation so you get the the first step ritual master with initiation second step with an initiation 2.5 no initiation so the first the first two initiations you have to again here it comes the cash story you have to have large dollar bills in an envelope that you have to when you come into the ceremony and kneel down and uh I'm talking now with Dave Lanyon. He used to do most of the initiations here in South Africa because he's the ritual master teacher. So he would use the sword then, which would be used the same to initiate you for every single healing initiation that you did on all the healer's path and the guide path. And then, of course, the RM path. So he would initiate you like in the olden days where you'd go like left shoulder, right shoulder, and then on the top of your head. And then you had to put this large amount of money in an envelope in cash as you knelt down in this little bowl. And that was your fee, well, part of your fee. Some pay, some of the money you paid into the account, as I mentioned. Then after that, you, you get 
accepted, you can apply to be a third step ritual master. And that is the highest ranking status as you could be as a ritual master. And that is what they call, like then you become a fully qualified exorcist. Complexity. Unnecessary complexity is the mother of confusion. But it also gives a system a sense of authority. If it's complex and I can't really grasp it, then it must be really important, right? Right. And uh, this initiation is really not for the faint-hearted and it's kept a secret in the school. So those people who have done this initiation keep it very, very quiet. And what happens is that you can apply for it and uh, you have to be chosen. So they always make sure and kind of give, give you this, this feeling of like, you know, am I going to get ex- accepted into doing it? Am I worthy enough to be able to do this initiation? And what, am, what happens if they don't choose me? Am I not serving the light? Am I not doing my work correctly? So all of this fear keeps being installed all the time, constantly. You don't realize that you're actually started already hooked into the brainwashing of the school. And they talk about free will. You have free will. You can leave any time, but actually you don't. Because if you want to leave, they say, well, you can go, but we're going to strip you of all your initiations, which means you lose all your money that you've spent hundreds and thousands. I mean, me personally, I spent almost 2 million rand going into the school. So people get really desperate and start selling their houses and selling their cars. You know, they, they encourage you to break away from your family, from your friends that are not involved in this, in this school, in this cult. So that they isolate you into, into this group that you actually can only function in this group and anything outside of this group is, is evil and not of the light. And they also claim that they are the only mystery school in the world that, that flows true light. All other mystery schools are of the dark and all other spiritual practices are of the dark. They're evil. So when you get, if you get chosen and when you get chosen as a third step ritual master to actually go ahead and do this initiation, you get asked to go to either, you can choose Toronto, Brazil or Japan. Now, for me, the ritual master path was the most important because all I wanted to do was to serve God and to be of the light and, and take out evil. That, that was what, I, what I've always been. I'm going to come from a ballerina background and that strong will is there to go and to fight the darkness and to, you know, to be the light. And um, so I chose Japan because I have great respect for the samurai and the sword that I have is actually a samurai sword. So Bernice chooses to go to Japan, but she has no idea that this trip to Japan may well be more life ending than life changing. So anyway, I went off to Japan and, uh, you know, they kind of didn't say anything to us. But we, we had an idea, you know, because people do talk, they don't <laughs> always keep their mouths quiet. But we had an idea, something to do with a mountain. Anyway, so we went, I went into Tokyo. It took us by train to um, this secluded place at Lake Seiko. And uh, we had one or two training days. And then they said, right, so you need to come and do your initiation now for third step. So we were like, okay. So we went up to meet Goodney and he said, uh, do you have your cash? Again, there, we had to have large dollar bills in cash notes handed over to him. And he said, right, you're only allowed your purba, which is like a Tibetan tool, which you could use to ward off evil or fight evil. 
and um, just basically a pair of shorts, tracksuit pants, a t-shirt, and a top over, and a raincoat. You weren't allowed anything else than socks and shoes. And you, were, we, you had to take, because we were all wearing jewelry, we were told we needed to wear pentagrams and all kinds of things to protect us. We had to take all of that off. So, of course, you feel bare because you've been doing this years of training and you have, you have to take all of your jewelry off. So there in itself, they make you have an attachment to something materialistic without listening and following your inner light within. Another sign of cult behavior. And uh, then you go, they lead you up this pathway on the mountain and they say, right, you have this bottle of water and some toilet paper. And here you will spend three days and three nights and you have to put an imaginary circle around you. And if you step out of that circle or come off the mountain, during this time, you will lose your money and you will not be initiated as a third step ritual master. So we were, we couldn't see each other. We were literally like separated in, uh, in different places. And, you know, we don't, I mean, for myself, I didn't know where, you know, if there were wild animals or, you know, bear was going to come down the mountain or a wild boar or, you know, it was just, you know, it was, it was, it was nerve wracking, but I was lucky enough because there was quite a, ridge that went down to towards the lake but I managed to find a piece that was kind of you know flat with 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 a log and then and then a tree so I didn't I wasn't worried about falling down the mountain so I kind of had a nice little spot I was very lucky but I tell you the first day was very difficult because you start sitting there and you're bored and then all of a sudden there's a picnic area right at the bottom and you can smell all the people brying and then you start getting hungry and there's nothing to eat because they don't give you any food. You've just got your water and you know that that water's got to last you for three days and three nights. And you smell the smell of the braai going on. You're thinking, oh, starving. I'm so hungry. I want to eat. And it's like, no, and you've got to get some mind of a matter. Anyway, evening comes and then it's black, absolute darkness because we're just opposite Mount Fuji and there's no lights, absolutely no lights. And, and literally an ant sounds like an elephant on the leaves so you start freaking out and getting scared and nervous and like oh my gosh like this is really happening and of course you don't sleep and you hear everything and then your mind starts playing tricks with you and then the next day uh, sleep deprivation starts kicking in because now you haven't slept for the whole day and the night and then you go through the day and in the woods and in the mountain you know if you find luckily enough it was one little tiny ray of sun that was coming through and I kind of like maneuvered myself around the tree so that I could just feel the warmth on my skin. And in this time in Japan, it was, it was supposed to be summer, but the evenings were cool, but you know, it could still cope. It wasn't freezing. And then that day, that second day was long. It was really long. And then it came to that, uh, that, that, that night again, same thing. Couldn't sleep a little bit of rain. I used my, my raincoat as kind of like a, a blanket on the ground, on the sand. I kind of covered myself up. But bearing in mind, I've just got this flimsy little tracksuit top and a, you know, and a T-shirt underneath and shorts and, and kind of like baggy tracksuit pants, nothing warm and thick. And then uh, so got through that night and then you start really not no sleep. If, if I could say that, I probably slept for like half an hour a day. That was just saying a lot. And by third night, you're completely delirious. You literally start tripping and seeing things. And there was this cold mist that came in from absolutely nowhere. It just appeared. 
And the strangest thing was where we had to create, we had to create this imaginary magic circles around us for so-called protection and use our purpose to fight off any evil that came to us. And you literally could start seeing these faces forming through this mist. It was very, very freaky and very, very scary. So with that sleep deprivation, your mind is completely on another level. People actually started walking off the mountain. They couldn't handle that. Couldn't handle it anymore. I know one girl fell down the mountain. Um, she wasn't injured. A couple of scratches and bruises because a wild boar came running down. So that, of course, shook everybody up because we heard this loud noise and screaming. And so anyway, Goodney actually felt sorry for us that night, and he sent the other ritual masters, the third steppers that had already done this initiation, off to go get us a blanket each. So, you know, they'd come and shine in the middle of the night and shine torches in your face to see. They wouldn't speak to you. They'd just shine torches in your face just to, just to make sure that you're, you're still alive, you know. I just wanted to pause here and say, and this is completely my opinion, he did not feel sorry for anyone on that mountain. This is all part of the process. Break you down, hand you a lifeline, isolate you on a mountain, deprive you of sleep and food, terrify you, then give you a blanket. I'm your lifeline. You cannot live without me. And then uh, they came in the morning and then they took the stuff away and that was like the fi final day. But by then you don't know how long you've been there for, how many nights, you just completely, absolutely delirious and out of it. And then eventually they come and fetch you and you think, oh, thank goodness, I can now go and have an, an onsen, which is the hot springs in Japan, and some food. But now you've kind of lost your appetite. So as we were walking down the mountain, you kind of feel like you're walking, if I can use the analogy of walking on, in space, you just, you're, you can see the ground, but your, your foot takes so long to get to the ground. That's how out of it you are. You're basically literally out of your body. And you're walking now to where the hotel is. And the next minute they take you past the hotel and you think, oh, what's going on now? And then they could take you around the corner into this forest area with a clearing. And then you just see you're going to shock and you just see these freshly dug graves in the middle of this forest. And you like go, OMG, we're about to be buried alive. And this fight and flight mode kicks in and your adrenaline shoots through the roof. And I'm not talking just a little hole in the ground. I'm talking about a proper grave that is dug in the ground that literally when you line it, you can see the worms and the roots and it's about just over a meter in depth. And it's, and it's obviously quite long because the guys, some of the Japanese guys that were also doing this initiation were tall. So they had to make it, you know, quite a fair, fair size. And there were three of them. We start, started with about 30 people and that went down to about probably about 15 of us or 20 of us. So quite a few people had left. I wasn't really counting, but just as I saw the numbers. And we had to sit with our backs knowing that you know, what was about to happen to us. So that in itself was completely freaky. So when it came to my turn, then they said, you've got to get in. And of course, you start shaking, you're shivering, you don't know what's going on. You want to throw up and vomit. You're scared to death, you know. Your adrenaline is pumping, your heart's pumping. And then they tell you to cup your hands, both hands, and put it over your mouth and your nose and to tuck your elbows in and to breathe very gently like they trained us in meditation, very slow breath. 
And then they put this plastic sheet over you and they tell you that's all the air you have to breathe. Then they put this plastic sheet over you and then they put it over the top and sides of this this hole that they've dug. This, but they have this, these ritual masters that have done this, that are standing around. They're standing on top of this plastic and then they start shoveling the sand on top of you and burying you. And it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And you just think, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I'm actually going to die. Like, like, what the hell? And then every now and again, you'll hear a soft voice. Are you okay? And you like, you like just, mm, 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 mm. Because you don't want to waste your air because you know that that's all you have to breathe is in the palms of your hands and your, through your nose and your mouth. And you can't move because the, it's so heavy. I mean, soil is heavy. And they didn't just lightly just like take a little handful and throw it in. It's spadefuls at a time. So you're really like you're really buried alive. And then you don't know how long you're under, under there for. And you're just panicking. You're trying to keep your heart rate down. And after a while, they, they pull off this plastic sheet with all the sand on. And then there was Dave in front of me and he pulled me out. And that was the initiation. He is standing in front of you and pulls you out. Again. Just my opinion. But this is no accident. He did not have to be there to pull them out. But once again, the Savior hands them a lifeline. He literally pulls them back from the edge of death. How much more powerful can you get? From there, then we went and we, you know, then we were allowed to eat something, get, you know, showered and washed and changed and we had another program and then back off to South Africa. So that is the final stage of the third step ritual master initiation. So it's not for sissies and in fact, extremely, extremely dangerous. And then from there, if you become a fully qualified guide after being a third step ritual master, you can then join a school of mage, uh, which again, you've got to be chosen to do, which is extremely expensive. I mean, we're talking millions of, of, of rands to do it over a period of a few years. Probably about, probably about one and a half million, let's just say about one and a half million if you have to convert it into rands. And then if you get chosen, you can become one of Goodney's apprenticeships and you can do his program where you have to fly to his home in Japan and it costs a fortune even more, probably way like two to three million rand just for that. But for me, I only got up to being a guide and of course, third separate master and I did the full path of the healer's path. Again, this is a classic pyramid scheme tactic. You're chasing the promise of running your own business and making your investment back. But the goalposts shift so much that you can never quite get there. Eventually, you're so far in the debt hole that you don't feel like you can actually walk away because then it will have all been for nothing. So up to this point, we have mostly heard about the financial impact that this organization has had on Bernice's life. But now she starts to experience a physical and psychological impact. So then in 2012, Goodney had sent an email out, well, just be prior to that, that in 2012, there was going to be a huge shift on the planet that was going to happen on May the 5th, and that, that the entire world 
was in serious danger and that we had to take on the task as warriors of light and as ritual masters to cross over 7 billion souls. So you can imagine having that being thrown at you that you, you have this responsibility of cross, crossing over 7 billion souls. Otherwise, the whole planet will die. So that's the brainwashing 101 right there too. So anyway, we flew off to, I flew off to Toronto and I went and did this training. Now, this was really hardcore training. This is where we really learned how to, you know, literally could really harm somebody if they had to come at you. And uh, he had this guy come in, couldn't he? And Dave, actually, they were both there and had this, this professional uh, bodyguard elite training guy come in and he showed us a few techniques of how to, how to fight. I remember we were in the hall and we were training and people were coming in from all over the world. It wasn't the actual event. We were training up for the event. And I remember very clearly fighting with each other and we had to swap over. We weren't really allowed to fight with people that were our, our, our own heights. We had to fight with, you know, some, some people smaller than us, some people larger than us, so that we could adjust to whatever, you know, would come and approach us. So there was this, this small Japanese girl and I was just, you know, we were like kind of like fighting, but fighting as in with like, you know, kind of hitting your hands against each other very gently, doing certain art, martial artist uh, kind of techniques. So we thought, so I thought it was martial artist stuff. Uh, meanwhile, I later found out it was a lot of mumbo jumbo that they put together and it was nothing to do with being a real martial artist. But at the time, none of us knew that because we were so hooked into the school. And we, as we were training with each other and I turned my head for just a one split second and she kicked me in the side and broke my nose. And anyway, this blood, blood came gushing out and I was like, oh my God, I need to come to, I need to go to hospital. And Rita van der Berg came running up to me and she was like, no, 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 no. Because Rita's a doctor, a medical doctor here in South Africa. She's actually a registered medical practitioner and for over 30 years already. So she came running up to me and she said to me, I need to break your nose now. You've got like not even like a minute because your nose is going to reset. And I was like, just take me to the hospital. And she said, no, you can't. You can't leave the energy. You have to stay. And she called another, another guy over, Sylvia, and he, she said, bite on the towel. And I was like, are you crazy? She said, bite on the towel. So I bit on the towel and she broke my nose. Clack. And she broke it back into place. Well, I tell you what, I haven't felt pain like that in my whole life. And I just said, well, can I have something, some painkillers or anything like that? And she was like, no, 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 no. You can't have that going through your energy. Carry on fighting. So there I plugged my nose up with, uh, with toilet paper or cotton wool. I can't remember what other one she gave me. And I had to carry on fighting for another couple of hours. It was so painful, but I was told to get over the pain. It's mind over matter. So there in itself, it was completely abusive. Absolutely 100%. And when I got back and I got off that plane and my parents came to pick me up from the airport, they took one look at me and they were like, you are leaving this cult immediately. I literally looked like Kung Fu Panda. My whole face was swollen and my eyes were black and blue. But I was so determined to stay in the school and so determined to fight evil and to go up into the ranks of going up to be third step ritual master to, to be able to fight these demons and to do what I needed to do as a warrior that, you know, meanwhile, I was completely being bullied and being groomed. I started distancing myself from my family and my friends because this is the instruction that I got from, from Dave. 
and from the school that, you know, if your family and your friends don't want to support you, they are not of the light, they're evil, and you need to start cutting them off, which I did. Because I thought that that is what was needed of me to move forward, to fight evil and, you know, to go on, on this on this path of, uh, of you know, self-progression. Well, actually not a path of self-progression, self their path of progression, which is not about self, it's about them controlling you. Bernice uses the word grooming. And although we usually relate that word to what a paedophile might do with a child they plan to abuse, the word actually perfectly describes what is happening here. Bernice doesn't know it yet, but what she's given up for the school so far is only the tip of the iceberg. I started to notice that something was just, Dave was giving me a lot more attention and I noticed that in the Warriors of Light in Toronto program, he was giving me a a lot more attention than, than most people. So he'd basically be calling me out in a group where we'll be having a, a training workshop. We'll be sitting in a room and he'd say, because I was in the fashion business and he would just like out of the booth say, oh, you should all dress like Bernice. And they kind of put me in a spot and I thought, okay, well, that's quite weird. Why would he be saying stuff like that? And, you know, he would always come and hug me and, and it was there was just this connection that was forming. Then there was Julia Tiffin, as I mentioned earlier, and I had a bit of a fallout because I just, there was this altercation of, you know, Dave said to me that my amount of money that I had paid into uh, for the Warriors of Light program, there was a shortfall and that I said I would add it in um, and pay him directly. So Julia then went in and paid it out of her own money. And then when she came to me, she said, oh, well, you know, I paid for it. I said, but you didn't consult me first. So this caused a little bit of a rift. And I just, she was just really nasty and ugly. And I thought, wow, you're supposed to be my guide and you're speaking to me like this and you're screaming at me in the phone and you're swearing at me. I said, this is just not on. And her viciousness and her nastiness and her abuse towards me was just like, I, I, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. And I went to Dave and I said, I'm done. I went out of the school. And he said, no, 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 no. You need to stay. You need to stay. And then Rita Funenberg and Julia Tiffin were always rivals. They were always fighting all the time. And eventually Julia stepped down from running the Modern Mystery School South Africa and Rita stepped up into running the Modern Mystery School in South Africa. But she was based in Johannesburg, so the Cape Town uh, branch basically closed down. And then I started to notice that there was this, the pull between Dave and I became more and more and more intense where he was literally writing emails and then ending them off with uh, see you soon goddess and uh, I miss you, cannot wait to see you. And, and that I could feel this hook coming in because, I mean, I've had my whole life quite a, I haven't had an easy life like most people, but I literally had formed this wall around me. And he's now I see it. I didn't see it then, but his whole aim was to get me. I was like some kind of goal, some kind of like, like a prize to win because I was such a strong person inside, because I had such a strong will, uh, and that comes from my ballet days. The one time we were doing a program, and we he hugged me, and as he hugged me, it was almost like our hearts literally just went, and it kind of like went into one, and I pulled away from him, and I said, what is that? Like, that is weird. And he just said to me, no, we have a soul connection. And I was like, all right. And then I could feel it every time I saw him, I was like, oh, I can't wait to see him, I can't wait to see him. And but it was like, it was when he was my ritual master teacher and I was training, he was, I, I was training. There was no like 
you know, I kept my feelings to myself. And then Rita, after a while, Rita came to me and she said, Dave has chosen you. And I was like, okay, so what does that mean? And she said, well, you know, he really loves who you are and what you represent and obviously your strong will. And there's an opportunity for you to be with Dave. Um, and then what would happen is that if you had to be with him sexually, that you could literally save all the souls in South Africa and Africa, basically. So I want you to pay very close attention to what is happening here. Firstly, Bernice has had a falling out with her initial trainer over a financial arrangement made with one of the leaders, which was then hijacked by her initial trainer. Then, when Bernice expresses a desire to leave the organization completely, the leader puts her under a new trainer. And now, it's the same new trainer who is approaching Bernice about the possibility of having a sexual encounter with the leader. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. Bernice's trainer is a woman, and she is respected as a higher-up. She is close to the leader in question herself. And now, she's telling Bernice that a sexual encounter with him will save people's souls. I also think that it's very interesting that at no time will the man ever directly approach Bernice about a sexual encounter. It's all done through this third party. And of course, it's framed as Bernice having a choice. But really, any form of consent for Bernice has long been demolished, along with her bank accounts and her emotional resources. So now I'm already like into my second step ritual master and I'm thinking, wow, this is what an incredible opportunity this was. Not thinking anything further and not seeing the manipulation that was happening prior to that and just thinking, oh, wow, what an honor this is. I mean, wow, wow, wow. And then from then, Rita would like subtly say to me, yeah, you know, you, you can't have any boyfriends and I don't see anybody. You know, you've got to keep yourself isolated and I listened. I listened because I was like, wow, I'm going to be, I mean, what a responsibility to have this happen. I mean, like, like, wow, you know, like, jeez. So I isolated myself and uh, only did the programs. You know, I went to one or two red carpet functions and stuff because I mean, obviously I was still having my, I still had my men's fashion business at the time. So I had to attend these events because I had the, and I had the business for 25 years. Uh, as of last year so you know I still had that side of, of life I didn't give up everything like they told that like they tell you to do and just focus on the healings for me it was easy so I went from being you know kind of like all right I'm now made a choice to serve God and the light and be a warrior I have to give up everything else that's materialistic and stuff and just focus on that she checked on me every single day what are you doing? You must do this, 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 this. And she took over from Julia as B and then became my guide. And wow, my first experience of teaching empower thyself was brutal, was brutal. You know, when I, when I did guide, I didn't want to do guide because I didn't want to follow the healer's path. And uh, Dave said to me, I want to gift you guide. 
I want to gift it to you. Now, people pay 50,000 rand at the time to do this initiation and flew all over the world to do it. And I thought, okay, well, that's, that's amazing. But I feel really bad because other people are paying for it. So it was all these little hooks that they kept hooking me in, hooking me in, hooking me in, hooking me in. And uh, Dave, uh, literally, as the process went, went on, was just started to control everything about my life. He wanted to know I wasn't allowed to fly anywhere without his permission. So I wasn't allowed to go from here to Johannesburg. I wasn't allowed to travel overseas. I wasn't allowed to have a holiday. I literally, he had to know my every single move, every single move. Something that has always amazed me about the process behind cult indoctrination is how similar it is to what an abusive partner does. And it's really similar because it's all just coercive control. Whether that control is being exerted by an organization or by an individual in a relationship makes little difference. The same elements are required to break the person down and get them under your domination. Now, Bernice is not only being coercively controlled by an organization, but in the belief that a relationship with the leader of the organization will serve the world, she is now simultaneously subjected to coercive control at a relationship level. Bernice now feels she's building a relationship with this man. She only sees him at organization events, but they stay in touch by email. And her trainer keeps an eye on her daily to ensure that she's doing what she needs to do to accomplish the goal, which will culminate with a sexual experience with this man. Bernice has been told that each country in the world has a different spiritual key. And when she consummates her relationship with the man, the South African key will join the Canadian key and save the souls of all those on the African continent. And uh, every time I saw Dave, which was only twice a year, I had worked myself up because I started then having feelings for him. So he'd managed to get the wall down that was covering my heart, that, I was, that was shielding myself. And I started to have feelings for him. And he was playing me all along. I'll give you an example. So we were sitting in one of the rooms in a class with all the other South Africans around us. And he'd walk past and he would start to play with my hair at the back of, of my neck, stroking my shoulder. And I just had to have a deadpan face. So I thought to myself, is he doing this to actually like push the buttons of the other ritual masters? Because he was, that's what he said. He said, I'm going to push your buttons. I'm going to push your buttons. And then everybody would be looking at me and I just had to keep a deadpan face. Like I was just had to switch off because I couldn't give away anything because I was told I'm not allowed to speak about uh, what, what was going on behind the scenes. Bernice is constantly told that she needs to do something more before she can achieve the goal of saving the 7 billion souls, a.k.a. having sex with that guy. She has to redo courses several times over. There's always something. And of course, it just serves to prove how important this mission is. But Bernice is not just submissive. She pushes back when she feels uncomfortable about certain things. And this only seems to spur him on. He tells Bernice that if she doesn't like something, she should fix it. 
of course. This gives her a tiny bit of hope that she's actually somehow in control. But she's not. It's all a carefully crafted illusion. So while all of this is going on in the background, the financial milking is still continuing. And it is Bernice's explanation of this element of the organization's modus operandi that I think really explains a large portion of their control over their members. Stand that you've got to keep taking loans out because these amounts got higher and higher and higher. And we're talking from 50,000, then it's 100,000, then it's 150,000 rand loan, then there's another 100,000 rand loan, and another 70,000 rand loan. And before you know it, you're in debt under your eyeballs. And they say to you, money's energy, don't have a poverty mindset. It will come, it's just energy, just keep taking loans. So they actually encourage you to get into debt. And if you don't attend the programs, they will, they threaten to strip you of your either your Healers Academy uh, doing life activation uh, or the full spirit, or they strip you as a guide, or they can strip you at any time for your ritual master state. So you're constantly in a fear of being stripped. So it's basically like going to UCT and you're doing a course on being becoming a doctor for, say, oh, I don't know how many years it is, just say five years. And you go and you pay all this money and you leave UCT and then they say to you, right, well, you can't become a doctor now because you had to stay at UCT for the rest of your life so that you can actually be a doctor. That's how stupid it is. That's the mentality of this cult. So, of course, you're in it. You don't realize it. And, uh, you know, I started getting really, like, worried. And and Dave, Dave became closer and closer and closer. And then eventually in 2015... It was, I came to a, a Warriors of Light program in uh, Johannesburg and he called me over. We were doing basic exorcism class and he called me over and he said to me, right, um, it's time. And I was like, okay, well, what does that mean? Like now I'm all nervous. It's my ritual master teacher telling me it's time. And he said, uh, give me your number. And I gave him my WhatsApp number and my cell number and we swapped numbers. Now, one thing about the school is nobody approaches any of the leaders, you've got to go through, I had to go through Rita or, you know, you had to go through whoever was in different countries. You could never go up to them and approach them. You didn't even know where they were staying in the hotel. It was all a secret. They were like, you know, they were like the hierarchy. They were like, like celebrities that you couldn't go near. So they were, they were well protected. And, you know, you had to make, if you needed to speak to them, it had to be an appointment, but they never gave you the time of day unless it was in the class. And dare you ask any questions that are outside of the class and push their buttons, then they say to you, oh, that's in the next class. So they keep hooking you in and saying, okay, well, it's not in this class, but you can, if you want to know more information, you've got to do the next class. So there's more money and more money, more money, because you want to know more and more and more because they give you a taster and then, you know, you want to keep going, going, going. So anyway, there I was, like finally, after all of these years of being groomed by Rita and in Johannesburg, I was like, okay, this is it. It's going to happen. I'm so excited, but I'm nervous. Anyway, I was told to cancel my flight because they were all flying back uh, on the following day. And, uh, and I had to stained my, my stay in, in the hotel. And then the next morning, I got a message from Rita. She was going to pick me up, but she said, oh, we need to go shopping and you need to make sure that you are looking like a goddess and everything is, 
you know, like you, your your nails are done, your feet are done, and whatever. And you know, because I am who I am in the in, in the fashion business, I'm always making you know sure that I have nice nails, that I'm you know that I look the part, and I'm always wearing you know I'm always well dressed, and that's because of the being in the fashion business. And then she said, "No, we need to go condom shopping," and I was like, "What?" no, we need to go condom shopping. I was like, okay, this is like, this is getting now real and, and just like weird. And I started feeling uncomfortable anyway. So we did. And uh, we bought bubble bath as well. I thought, okay, that's just strange. And then she put me in the room. I went to go back into my hotel room and there I had to sit the entire day in meditation. Now my heart's palpitating. I don't know what's going to happen. Everybody's left. My roommate left. I told her, thank goodness, I was told I was sworn to secrecy, but I did tell her because the room was under her name. Uh, she paid with her credit card and I gave her South African rands because she was from Israel. And uh, she heard me change my flight. So she was, unfortunately, she passed away from cancer last year. So, uh, but there is her testimony on, on, on a recording before she left, just to say that this is actually what happened. And then at about 11 o'clock that night, I got a message from Rita to say that Dave is ready for me and that there will be a key, a card key left at reception in an envelope with my name in it. And that will get me up to his suite. Um, and this was in a hotel at the Monte Casino in Johannesburg. So my hotel was between the, I had to walk through the casino to get to this, his exclusive hotel where he was staying. So of course, I was like now nervous. I've been meditating the whole day, thinking, okay, this is it. I've, all these years of grooming is now finally, now what's going to happen? Am I going to save these souls? My heart was in it 100% because I had feelings for him. So I went to reception and I was like, hi, my name's Bernice. And I thought, and I had to walk through the casino and I'm dressed to the nines and I go and I give, take the key card and I'm thinking, this is really weird. But anyway, I go into the lift, put the key in, go to his hotel door and I thought, I'm not going to insert the key in the door. I'm, I'm going to knock. So I knocked and I went inside and he was like, hi, goddess, come inside. And then we sat in the lounge area because he had a suite and he just took off my watch and he said, in here, there is no time. And I was like, just looked at him and he was no longer my ritual master teacher. He was not some ipsissimus Thor, God of Thunder, Viking clan leader. He was just a man. And I saw it for the first time. He was just a man. And then we had sex. And at about five o'clock in the morning, I, I said to him, I said, well, what do I do? This is like weird. Do I go? Do I stay? Like, you know, what now? And he said, no, um, you can do whatever you want. You can stay or you can go. And I thought, no, I have going to leave. I feel uncomfortable here. So I left the hotel, his hotel room, and I walked through the casino, feeling like doing the walk of shame. Well, those, some of those people that were gambling were there when I first walked through. So it was, oh, my goodness, like people are staring at me. Anyway, got on a flight the next day, came back that day, came back to Cape Town. And yeah, so, so that was it. And he did, he did say to me that he will, because now we were talking on WhatsApp and that he would see me again and this would continue. So as Bernice adjusts to this new interaction with the leader of the organization she's in, she starts to see things within the group that she hadn't noticed before. Sexual things, 
and undercurrents that concerns her. And soon she starts to realize that as much as she was told that the sexual interaction between her and that man was something spiritually sanctioned, she may not be the only one that thinks this about themselves. So then we did a program here in, in, in Cape Town, uh, just in, in, uh, in Malkos, where we had to do like a temple. And uh, we, we did different types of temples. We did a Nokian temple, which is for fighting evil. And I was a high priestess at one point for this Enochian temple. And we had to go and do temples weekly, Enochian temples weekly, where we had to, again, be of service. And this was held at Somerset West. And I live on the other side, I live like Bloberg side, which is really far. It took me an hour almost to get into, into Somerset West. And we had, this was part of our service, driving there, doing temples to, you know, re- take out demons and to raise the energy of the planets and spread light on the planet. So this was done weekly. We had to do this weekly at our own expense because it's service. And then there was another temple which we had to do, which is called the Egyptian temple at the time. Uh, I don't know what it is now. Apparently the name has changed. And in this temple, I was one of the temple dancers because of my ballerina background. And uh, Maki Otani was the high priestess of, of this Egyptian temple. And what you have to basically do is create passion in this temple. And you get four dancers that that open up the the different keys to the temple and everybody takes part. And it's just that they try and make it very Egyptian-y and, you know, you've got to wear pretty essential oils on and you get the high priests and priestess, uh, which they get nominated, a male and a female. And then the dancers, which I was part of, uh, I mean, I had to open, open and close the gates of the temple. That was my job and literally had to raise the passion energy in the temple sexually. So I had to use my energy and using my flow, not touching people, but sexually arousing people through movements. We all had to so that it could be creating more powerful energy inside of this temple. So that was, that was one of the temples that I, I I started in, I first enjoyed because I'm a dancer. So for me, it was like, it was all amazing and I could move and and of course higher, again, the higher you go, the more you see and the more you realize, Oh, this actually doesn't feel so good. And I remember one time in Toronto where there was a, a whole group of us, uh, probably about, about 100 students, and it was just vile. It was vile. I just felt literally as if I was energetically raped from having to hug, because you, know, you had to do this connection exercise where you had to touch. It was all about touching and, you know, but just fingers, like fingertips and then your 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 um, your, your hands and your arms, and it was like, ugh. And then you could feel the arousal coming through from the men, and vice versa with a woman. And because we were dancers, we had to create this passion flow. But no, no sick of clothes on, no sexual activity, but just the essence of getting turned on was just like, ugh, just like literally felt like I wanted to go and have a shower and scrub myself, which I did afterwards. But you really like, you get dressed up and you just like, you know, some, and they encourage people. They don't want, if you don't want to wear un- underwear under your, under your garments, you don't have to. They were white cloaks, cloaks with hoodies and then purple cloaks with, uh, with hoodies, depending on what rank you were. So real cult stuff. Uh, and the movie Eyes Wide Shut comes to mind right now. So, but without the masks. 
So it was that kind of that kind of energy. And I do remember that time in Toronto where one of the girls, who's now one of the guides, uh, actually came and danced topless. So it was really very sexual, very distasteful. But again, we were told, get out of your egos. Well, okay, so we did what we did. I may be reaching here, but I really feel like the sexual energy concept is a form of desensitization. By introducing this idea that sexuality can be equated to good energy in the context of the group, it makes it much easier for the so-called leaders of the group to take advantage of that idea later. But Bernice wasn't being told that this was a group thing. She was being given the impression that there was a relationship at stake with global spiritual consequences between her and that man. I'm going to be ending part one here. Part two is already available on your podcast listening platform, so you can go head straight over there and listen to the rest of Bernice's story. Try to catch me howling at the moon. I lived through this tells the stories of ordinary South Africans who've survived unimaginable situations. If you'd like to share your story of survival, you can head over to our Facebook page and fill in the form, or you can email livedthroughthis at gmail.com. I Lived Through This releases new stories every second week. In between, you can head over to our social media platforms, we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and join in the conversation with our survivors. Thank you for listening.